You are listening to Sermon Select on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. We are surrounded by those who are calling for the continued an indefinite lockdown of church, society, and business in our country. Many seem to believe that new forms of social distancing must continue for many months and even years and even permanently. My theme this morning has to do with the subject of social distancing. It is why social distancing cannot continue indefinitely consistent with New Testament Christianity. Let me say that again. My theme is why social distancing cannot continue indefinitely consistent with New Testament Christianity. Now, the stating of my thesis may raise some immediate questions in your mind, which I think for your sake and my own, I need to address right away. And here's one. Are you saying, Pastor Sam, that all social distancing is wrong? No. Before I go any further, let me be clear that certain forms of quarantining are appropriate, allowed, even mandated, in some cases, by the Word of God. Anybody with an acquaintance with Scripture knows that leprosy and those afflicted with it were to quarantine or socially distance themselves from healthy people to prevent the spread of the disease. Leviticus 13.45 is familiar to most of you. It affirms the most drastic form of social distancing. As for the leper who has the infection, his clothes shall be torn and the hair of his head shall be uncovered and he shall cover his mustache and cry, Unclean, unclean. Well, there's a form of social distancing, right? Very radical form of it. Um, so it seems to me then that the Bible supports social distancing of certain people in certain cases and in certain circumstances. But it ought to be evident, I think it is evident to most of you, that the Bible never intended such reasonable precautions to be universalized or made permanent. They were very, very sick people, not well people. And my assertion is that disastrous results must ensue, not only for the human race, but for the church of Jesus Christ, if such quarantining and social distancing are universalized and made the permanent condition. Here's another question. You may have heard me use the peculiar or at least specific phrase, New Testament Christianity. Why did I speak of New Testament Christianity? I have said that social distancing is inconsistent with New Testament Christianity. I'm going to tell you why I said that. Many Christians today are familiar with the notion that the God, that God's Old Testament Israel was a physical people, and they have also heard that God's new Israel, the church, is a spiritual people. This contrast is good and true, and 
is, is right in many respects. It's true and helpful to assert that the new Israel is spiritual as compared with the old Israel, which was physical and outward. But we must not think, and that truth must not lead us to think, that everything about the new Israel is spiritual, immaterial, and invisible. Uh, it must not lead us to, uh, to, to adopt in some radical form the notion that Christ's church is completely invisible. How could anything physical, uh, this might be the conclusion people would draw, have anything to do with such a spiritual, immaterial, and invisible entity? Now, it is true that there's a contrast. You know there's a contrast. We as Reformed Baptists assert the contrast between the fact that the old, uh, old Israel was a physical nation and the new Israel is a spiritual nation, and that's why we don't baptize our babies or circumcise them. This truth is taught throughout the Word of God. Jeremiah 31, the great text which contrasts Old and New Covenant in the Old Testament, is clear about it. And John 1 is another of the many passages in the New Testament that make this contrast between Old and New Israel clear. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Now stop and think about that. They obviously weren't his own spiritually. But they were his own in some sense. They were in covenant with God, but not in a spiritual covenant. They were in covenant with God. They were his own. But this being his own didn't make them spiritual or give them the eyes to see that Jesus was the Messiah. And so Jesus contrasts his true new covenant people with the old covenant people with these words. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. That language of children of God is covenantal language. They were adopted as children of God, not in the sense of old Israel, but in the sense of the spiritual blessings of the new covenant, even to those who believe in his name. And then he caps it all off with the clear words of verse 13, which are also contrasted with the old covenant situation. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of a husband or an adult male, but of God. You see, being born of the right parents got you into Old Covenant Israel. It doesn't get you into New Covenant Israel. You have to be born of God. You have to, as a result of that new birth, receive Jesus Christ in, in, in faith in order to be a part of God's New Covenant people. So, yes, there's this contrast. It's an important contrast, and it's a contrast that we insist on. It's important, that's a, that's important to, uh, it's a contrast that's important to our very identity as a church. But all of this does not mean that the church is a purely or essentially spiritual, immaterial, and invisible reality. Such a notion dehumanizes the church. It is at bottom a denial of God's good creation. My point this morning is that there are certain physical realities essential to the New Testament church that are contrary to the notion of social distancing as a perpetual condition for God's good. So how am I going to argue my thesis? I have four reasons to support my thesis. They are these. 
This is so because of the command to assemble as a church. This is so because of the command to practice a holy kiss. This is so because of the command to enjoy love feasts together. This is so because of the command to celebrate the Lord's Supper. It is so, first of all, because of the command to assemble the church. I suppose to some people, it seems consistent to say that the church may assemble, but still be socially distanced. Now, certainly, I'm not denying that some reasonable precautions should and could be taken temporarily. Venues can be cleaned more regularly. Symptomatic people can be urged to stay home. People can sit farther apart. But in my opinion, some of the social distancing rhetoric ignores fundamental realities about human beings and their assemblies. Can I put it this way? You cannot tell people to get together without getting together. Does that make sense? Ultimately and strictly, the call for the church to assemble is a call for the opposite of social distancing. To socially assemble is the very opposite of to socially distance. Such assemblies at the very essence of what it means to be the church. As you know, the term church essentially means an assembly, a gathering together. This is why the New Testament everywhere assumes that the church will assemble and must assemble. You know the classic passages. Let me just review them for you. Matthew 18, 17 to 20. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, the assembly. And if he refuses to listen even to the assembly, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. For where two or three have gathered together, synagogue together, assembled in my name, I am there in the midst. Or 1 Corinthians 5, which is built on that text, Paul says, For I on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Or Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. It is not optional for the church to assemble. Such passages as these require it. Yet today there are supercautionary voices which say that all such assembly is just recipe for trouble or rather the coronavirus to spread. People will breathe each other's air. They will want to grab each other's hands. Whores, they may even hug each other. Yes, it's true. That is what will happen. And that is the whole point. It brings me in the second place to the fact that social distancing is inconsistent with New Testament Christianity because of the command to practice the Holy Kiss. (laughs) Here I am again, being that fool that walks in where angels fear the tread, right? Aren't you being stupid, Sam? This is the question I ask myself. Bringing up the Holy Kiss 
well, maybe <laughs> you can make your own judgment about it after I'm done, I guess. But nevertheless, hear me out, or rather, hear the New Testament out. With regard to the holy kiss, consider the prominent passages. Now, this is nothing like a, um, I, I, I realized after I started thinking about this, the holy kiss could be a subject of a whole message, but you probably won't want to be here when I preach that one. <laughs> but there are prominent passages, and I think more prominent passages than you may realize with regard to this whole matter of the Holy Kiss. Here are just uh, um, maybe the six most important ones in the New Testament. I said the six most important ones in the New Testament. Acts, Acts 20, 37. You don't need to turn to this one. I'll have you turn to one or two others. Acts 20, 37. And they began to weep aloud and embrace Paul and repeatedly kissed him. Now. This passage is, of course, not normative. It is descriptive. That is to say, it does not tell us what we must do. It simply tells us what those who love Paul did do. They kissed him and embraced him when they heard that he was going to go to Jerusalem despite their misgivings. <clears throat> but it is descriptive, so maybe we don't feel much of an obligation about that. The next Five passages are not descriptive. They're all imperatives. Turn to Romans 16, 16. I won't make you turn to all five, but I want you to look at a couple of them. <clears throat> Romans 16, 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. And then Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 16, 20. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. 2 Corinthians 13, 12. Greet one another with a holy kiss. 1 Thessalonians 5, 26. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. But it's not just Paul with his own cockeyed ideas, as some might say. It's also Peter. Turn to 1 Peter 5.14. Where Peter says, greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. Those are the prominent passages. Five imperatives from the mouths, or the pens at least, of apostles in the New Testament. And that's my next point. That's the apostolic authority of these passages. Here I'm simply wanting to point out the obvious. These are apostolic commands to churches. In our, day, in our day, the special place and authority of the apostles is not recognized or understood by many Christians. But I remind you that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Ephesians 2.20. And one of those apostles said to the church, 
If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things I write are the commandment of the Lord. And so, <laughs> what the Apostle Paul wrote, and the Apostle Peter wrote, are the commandments of the Lord. And so the Lord said, greet one another with the Holy Kiss. Now, this being the case, we cannot shuffle off these commands by saying some of the terrible stuff that evangelicals say today. That's just what Paul thought. No, it is what the apostles Peter and Paul taught. Lord. That was just their culture. But that is what people are saying about the biblical commands regarding marriage and homosexuality. Or, that was just, that was then, this is now. And if you use that hermeneutic, you can write off everything in the New Testament and still call yourself a Christian. Okay, that's the apostolic authority. The third thing and last thing I want to say about uh, these commands are their proper practice. Now, I'm attempting to get you to look more seriously at these apostolic commands than perhaps you've ever done. And perhaps now you're looking at uh, them more seriously and you're scared silly. <laughs> right? Right? Um, my asking you to look at them more seriously has filled you with questions and made some of you really nervous and some of you maybe be horrified and maybe not ever want to come to church again because somebody might give you a holy kiss. <laughs> well, let me see if I can make some some of you a little less nervous and unhorrify you. And at the same time, answer some questions about the holy kiss, okay? Here's the first thing we have to cleanse our minds of. Uh, we have to say, kissing in the Bible, as opposed to our culture, and that's what we gotta cleanse out of our minds, our culture. First, kissing in the Bible is not necessarily sexual in nature. Now, it's not even in our society completely sexual in nature, but you know that we live in a hypersexualized pornographic culture where kissing seems to be mainly and massively sexual contact, right? But it is not that in the Bible. The Bible does speak of kisses that are sexual in nature, but in the Bible, most kissing has absolutely nothing to do with sex. Here's the second thing that we need to say about this holy kissing. Kissing in the Bible is usually not, you'll be relieved to hear me say that. I, this, I think. Kissing in the Bible is usually not necessarily a lip-to-lip -lip kind of thing. Can that help you a little bit, does it? It's rather an expression of physical love. Actually, the word for kiss comes from the word for a friendly kind of love. You know, there are several different kinds of love, and the word for kiss comes from uh, one of those words that is a reference usually to a friendly kind of love. The point is, we do not need to become legalistic about what counts as a holy kiss, okay? Uh, you didn't quite touch me with uh, on my cheek with your lips, so it's not a holy kiss. Come on. Let's not go there. Uh, uh, let me put it this way. You have to touch someone to kiss them. Would you agree with that? <laughs> the most minimalist, the most minimal, I'll have to say, I, I used to be able to say that. The most minimalist version of holy kissing I can offer you still must insist on physical contact. Let me clear, be clear then. I think that holy hugging, handshaking, and fist bumping all come under the general category of holy kissing. 
I do. But thirdly, holy kissing, uh, I think you have to understand, this is where Paul's and Peter is probably coming from, really. It's not a uniquely Christian thing. It's a human thing. It's a human thing. Human beings express love in many ways, but one of the essential ways they do that is by touching. Um, Pastor Ben sent me a, a good article where John Piper actually walked in where uh, angels feared to tread, like me. <laughs> and here's some of the things he said. These are quotes, and I think, I think they're helpful. I take, he says, the physical familial expression of endearment and use it in a way that is holy to express your love for one another. Then he says, kissing is not uniquely Christian. It's not a uniquely Christian affection. And what the apostles say is, take it from the world and sanctify it. Make it holy. Devote it to God. Make it say something about the Holy One. So the lesson we can learn here, this is another quote, is whatever means of expressing greetings, let them be genuine. So I think what the apostles want to do is encourage us to use various culturally appropriate symbols of greeting and sanctify them and make them holy. And then he goes on to say, last quote, Christians should feel genuine affection for one another, and he wants us to be demonstrative and real affections, and this is what we should seek to grow in. So um, on the one hand, uh, don't be horrified. Uh, you do this stuff all the time. On the other hand, don't, um, don't be completely uh, Northern European in your, in your idea of what is normally human. You know, we live in one of the most cold and distanced societies in the world. You understand that, right? Uh, you go to South America, you try this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I won't go into South America, but uh, I mean, uh, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you some stories. South America, you go walk down the streets in Peru and you have two guys holding hands. They're not homosexuals. You have three women with their arms around each other walking. They're not homosexuals. That, that's just the way they do things. That's just the way, yeah, that's their, their habit in terms of physical affection. And so on the one hand, I'm not, I'm not wanting to uh, come up here and horrify you uh, with with some sort of demand that uh, I don't think that you're you're responsible for. On the other hand, I don't want you to think that you're normal. Maybe the rest of the world is normal, right? Well, anyway, here's what I think. I think the apostolic commands trump. I wrote this without intending a pun. I think apostolic commands trump the super precautious dictates of modern medical experts. The good doctor does not get to tell us never to shake hands again. He certainly does not get to tell the Christian church not to do such things in the face of the whole teaching of the word of God. Let me make another application. I think the command to show physical affection to other Christians in some ways does test how we really feel about them. <clears throat> uh, there are lots of passages about kissing that I wanted to bring up this morning. Of course, one of the most well-known ones in the Bible has to do with Judas kissing Jesus, right? What's up with that? 
there's an hypocrisy that's almost painful about physical, showing physical affection to people you really don't love, right? That's what's so awful about Judas' fake kiss. Uh, so I think the command to show physical affection to other Christians in some ways tests how you really feel about them. You really don't want to hug that brother this morning. You don't want to shake his hand. Well, that's, that's a sign there's a problem, my friend, you got to go deal with. Maybe you do not sometimes touch or show physical affection because you really do not love that person. You're not feeling very good about them. You have a problem with that person, and it would feel too much like a Judas fake kiss, wouldn't it? I think there's something to think about there for all of us. Finally, let me qualify. I think you and I, I think you and I as a pastor have to be very sensitive to people's feelings on this issue at the present time. You don't want to be hugged and have your hand shaken. I won't do it. Not for a while. <laughs> Just as we deferred assembly, deferred to assemble for a little while, so we can defer physical greetings for a little while, if people are uncomfortable with it, and we should be really sensitive to people's feelings. What I'm saying here is long-term instruction, not short-term guidance. All right? But there's a third reason why uh, social distancing cannot indefinitely continue consistent with New Testament Christianity, and it's this. Uh, it is so because of the command to enjoy love feasts together. It is so because of the command to enjoy love feasts together. Now, I fought with myself over the use of the word command here. Are we commanded to have love feasts as a church? Well, we're certainly not commanded to do this in the same way exactly as we're commanded to do the other things, my other three headings. The same way we're supposed to do the Lord's table, for instance. At the same time, it's difficult to impossible for me to evade the feeling after I studied the New Testament and the conviction that in some sense we are commanded by New Testament precedent, at least, to, to have ordinary meals together as Christians. We call them fellowship meals, but they are called love feasts in the Bible and in the commentaries. And, and so let me just remind you of some of the evidence for the whole issue of love feasts in the Bible. Uh, it begins with uh, the realization that the Passover meal from which the Lord's Supper is derived was a real meal, right? It was the custom then of early Christians to celebrate the Lord's Supper in the context of a more ordinary meal. The Christian church at Corinth was obviously doing this, although, as we know from 1 Corinthians 11, doing it very badly. Remember what it says, Therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? And this I will not praise you. So, you know, Paul does say here, better not to have this uh, ordinary meal together if it's going to result in stuff like this. But it's not a blanket condemnation at all. In fact, other passages in the New Testament certainly assume love feasts, fellowship meals. Jude 1.12 provides more reason to believe that such love feasts were the common practice in the early church. I quote, these are the men who are hidden reefs. In your love feast, when they feast with you without fear. What does that assume? That they had love feasts. 
Or 2 Peter 2.13 probably reflects on the same love feast. Suffering wrong is the wages of doing wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. You see that word? Hear that word carouse? It doesn't mean necessarily what we think of it. Um, it's translated feast in the ESV. And once more, this seems to be a clear reference to the common practice of a love feast. So it's this combination of love feasts with the Lord's Supper that I think is responsible for some of the places where it's hard to tell whether we're talking about an ordinary meal or whether we're talking about the Lord's Supper, especially in the book of Acts and a couple of places, Acts 2, Acts 20. Uh, breaking bread, is it a reference to the Lord's Supper? It seems like it is, but at the same time, it seems like there's an ordinary meal going on too. And why? because the practice of the love feast and some sort of association with the Lord's table was a common practice. How do you evaluate all this evidence? Uh, I think combined with everything else we know, I, I think that we can say that there is certainly some sort of general duty, precedent, command for Christians to feast together, to eat together. Now, This is the honest truth, I think. I do not think there's any way to do this that will satisfy some modern squeamish germophobes. <laughs> I'm going to be a little ridiculous here, but I think, uh, I think sometimes, there, well, there's so much ridiculous going on right now in our country, we might as well be ridiculous ourselves. Huh? <laughs> do we really need to put together hermetically sealed lunches in some sort of super clean environment and eat our lunches at a proper social distance and do this for months, for years, and forever? <laughs> Come on. I think you must see that to adopt such practices will mean a practical end to anything like love feasts. Can we defer such feasts for a time for the sake of tender consciences? Yes. Can we use wisdom and within reason lessen risk? Of course. Can we be tender to those who are more sensitive than us about all of this? Yes, we can and we should. But such deferring wisdom and tenderness simply cannot realistically be practiced indefinitely. And it must not be practiced indefinitely. Well, that brings me to my last point. It is the specific and pressing duty of celebrating the Lord's table. And so social distancing cannot continue indefinitely because of the command to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Now in contrast to the way which love feasts are presented in the New Testament, which I, I, I guess I wanna say command, you know, I'm saying precedent, example, you know, really good idea. Um, in contrast to that, the imperative of the Lord's Supper is, is absolutely crystal in at least five different passages. Take, eat, drink, do, all imperatives. Direct commands. <laughs> but well, when you read the passage, the scandal of the Lord's Supper it goes much further the original accounts clearly speak of Jesus and his disciples drinking from the same cup. 
and eating from the same loaf broken in pieces for them by the ungloved fingers of the Lord. Now, good Christians differ as to how exactly these indisputable facts about the Lord's Supper should be implemented in our churches today. It's clear that even in a small church like our own, we could not all drink from the same cup like the Lord and the 11 apostles did at the Lord's Supper. Therefore, understand that I am not here today to deduce rules about that from the scriptures. I'm not here today to tell you that we have to drink from the same cup as the next Christian down the road. I do think that the symbolism of a shared cup and a shared loaf is vital to the Lord's table, needs somehow to be maintained. My point is that the social distancing being demanded of us because of the present distress raises all sorts of questions about our very ability to practice the Lord's Supper. You know, it, it, this is talked about in code language when you, when you read the guidelines. Worship materials. Yeah, right. We're talking about the Lord's Supper, folks. The social distancing being required by some is incompatible with the celebration of the Lord's Table and anything that looks like biblical practice. <laughs> Again, I'm going to be ridiculous, but then I'm not the only one. Are we really to prepare a little piece of unleavened bread and a little cup of grape juice and a super clean lavatory and serve the Lord's Table and hermetically sealed pouches with gloved hands? all of us, so that none of us touches with his bare hands the outside of someone else's pouch. Right? We're going to do that, right? That's possible, right? My point is that if you head down that route, it's practically inconsistent with any continued biblical practice of the Lord's Supper at all. Can we defer practice of the Lord's table for a temporary period? Yes, and we have. Can we make minor changes to help sensitive souls? Yes, I think we can, and we're going to. You may notice us making certain minor changes in our celebration, which are intended to assist sensitive souls. But you will also see us making changes intended to underscore the vital symbolism of a shared cup and a shared loaf. A shared cup and a broken loaf. But you may also then see uh, those changes as well. And they are important visual reminders of the meaning of the Lord's table. This message has been laser focused on the details of what Christ commands of his church. And I guess it could feel to somebody a little scrupulous, like detail mania, even someone might say Phariseeism. I don't think it is, but I get it. We do need to see the bigger picture of what Jesus called the weightier provisions of the law. And so let's, let's think about that. Given what we've been seeing in the scriptures this morning, what are the weightier provisions of the law, which a message like this should make us think about? Here are some of them. Christianity is essentially physical. Uh, we're, we're just way too spiritual, some of us, in the way we think about uh, Christianity. <laughs> I, I hate to put it that way, but I think it's the truth. One of the earliest heresies vomited out of the mouth of Satan to poison the church was the notion that the physical universe was evil. 
Thus, it could not be true that Jesus came in the flesh, was a true man, and rose from the dead in his flesh. That heresy also said that it did not matter how we treated and what we did with our bodies. All of that was heresy. And similarly, we must say today to the voice of the world that there's some physical realities that the church has to have, must have. Virtual meetings are not the same as the assembly of the church. They are no adequate substitute for such assemblies. We have taken the position as your pastors that such virtual meetings may serve a purpose and be useful. I think we've experienced that usefulness. We've not declined the opportunity to hold Zoom meetings for the edification of the body. We have worked hard to hold such meetings. We have not taken the position that somehow to do so would be bad for the church. Yes, all of that's true, but we do, we do think that those godly pastors, and there are not a few of them, who have taken that position, we don't, we don't think that they're without a point. And it is such virtual meetings, uh, and that point that they have is that such virtual meetings do not satisfy the command of the Bible to assemble as a church. We have to get together to get together. The Lord's table also is not some secondary and unimportant visual age that we can do without permanently. It's not. And physical contact with one another is not something that can be jettisoned at the call of the world because of our germophobic age. We must not lose the physical character of Christianity. Even in good materials, I was reading a book published by Banner of Two of the Devotional the other night, and this guy said some stuff that I wondered, what in the world? Really, it's a good thing to not have a body, which is what he was basically saying. Nonsense. The body is important. God created the body. We need our bodies. Go away with that platonic interpretation of Christianity. Virtual is not physical, and it is sub-biblical. We must not lose the physical character of Christianity. That's one of the weightier provisions of the law. Here's another one. You can't swallow whole everything the world feeds you. I'm a great believer in the idea that those laws about cleanness and uncleanness in the Old Testament were intended to teach Israel this great fundamental lesson. You can't swallow everything. There's a fundamental difference in the world between the really clean and the really unclean. You cannot, must, must not swallow the world whole eating anything the world is feeding you. Discernment, discretion, wisdom are necessary always and everywhere. Christians must guard themselves with a fundamental suspicion of the world and its culture. Put up the filter. Don't be a madman eating anything that those folks feed you. Do you have such a filter, or do you stupidly wander through the world swallowing whole everything it has to offer? Stop it, please. Remember Paul's urgent advice to the Thessalonian church. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. There's more need than ever for such. Discernment today. 
Conspiracy theories abound on the internet and explode out of Facebook. More reason than ever there is to examine everything carefully. Third weightier issue of the law. The question raised by the culture, the questions raised by the culture and this culture in distress are an opportunity to go back to the Bible and understand it better. They are an opportunity to go back to the Bible and understand it better. Well, we like our cozy little worlds, don't we? We like things to stay the same. We have our nice, well-ordered mental worlds. We think in well-established ways about things. And of course, there is a wisdom in the tradition of the church. We believe in confession. But we don't think that everything always stays the same. The confession is a result of 20 centuries of problems being answered from the Bible that nobody thought about before. We do not want to change, though, our developing our comfortable little ways of thinking. The problem is that the world just isn't like that. It does keep changing, and the church is not like that. It keeps facing new problems. Things are always developing. Crises are always happening. <clears throat> Here's one of my favorite things that C.S. Lewis ever said. One of my favorite books by him. Ask me later what it is. He says in that book, have you ever noticed that the universe and every bit of the universe is always hardening and narrowing and coming to a point? I mean this, if you dip into any college or school or parish or family and anything you like, at a given point in its history, you always find that there was time before that point when there was more elbow room and contrasts were quite as sharp. And that there's going to be a time after that point when there's even less room for indecision and church and choices are even more momentous. Good is always getting better and bad is always getting worse. The possibilities of even apparent neutrality are always diminishing. The whole thing is sorting itself out all the time, coming to a point, getting sharper and harder. You do well to think about that quote from Lewis. What does all that mean practically for you? You just can't go back. You're going to have to face the problems the world puts in front of you. You've got to face them from the Bible. And there are answers there. We've got to believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. But the problems we may face are maybe new, and there may be new light yet to spring out of the Word of God. You cannot take refuge in your uh, simple tradition and ask the things just go back to the way they were. They're not the same. They're not going to be the same, but this is good. Because it's all a call to go back to the Bible and understand it better and practice it more faithfully. Finally, well, besides one closing word, this is fine. Don't be a reactionary. Don't be a reactionary. What I mean is, throughout this message, I feel like I've been doing battle on two fronts. I've been saying that we must resist being forced into the world's mold. I've also been saying that we must be tender to people's consciences and feelings when wherever, when and wherever we can. Those two principles, I think, I hope, I believe, have guided your pastor's response to the whole COVID-19 crisis. But what are these two things? You know what I think they are? I think they're the faith and the love which are in Christ Jesus. Faith. 
we can't be forced into the world's mold. We have to hold scripture, hold it tenaciously, hold it dogmatically, hold it fearlessly. On the other hand, love. We have to do so with a tender regard for people's consciences, for people's feelings. So faith in and commitment to the scriptures makes us resist the world. Love for all the saints makes us maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace and respect other people's consciences. So don't jettison faith and love and mindlessly react either in the direction of your desire for safety or your desire to bash those who are stealing our freedoms and usurping authority that God has not given them. Be guided. Here it is. This is what I mean by don't be a reactionary. Be guided by both faith and love. Closing word. I'm supposed to, and I believe in this, bring all this back to Christ. So what could a message about love feast and Lord's table and holy kisses and sundering have to do with Christ? Much every day. Um, this message brought me face to face again with a wonderful fact that Jesus, what Jesus we preach was a real physical man. He is not kids a heavenly ghost. He is not a wonderful idea. He is a genuine man with a body like yours and mine. And when he was on earth, people kissed him. Sometimes falsely. Oh, that forgiven woman kissed his feet, showed him physical affection. Now, does this real man that each of you must have feelings with? And I think maybe I can press it on you this way um, as a result of this message. You know, the Bible does, you know, there's a command that, there's a command that has to do with kissing. It's in Psalm 2. Kiss the son. All right, so here, here it is. This, as I said, it's not necessarily a but kind of thing. Here you are, kids. Here's Jesus. His hands are held out to you. Basically, he's saying, come hug me. But know this. This is what this means. Hug me, and I am yours, and you are mine forever. Now, will you hug me? Some of you have sat there and sat there and sat there and never hugged Jesus. And that's why you're not a Christian. And our prayer is, my prayer is, but you'll see this vividly today. And you will embrace the Savior as he's freely offered to you in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, our, our heart's desire and prayer to God is that uh, our brothers according to the flesh, would be saved. So we ask that your spirit would come, power, 
and show them vividly both their resistance and the way to receive in their hearts the Savior. We ask this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this week's Sermon Select on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.